from science. And as we have moved from a modernism type society, we have now entered a postmodern society, which was exemplified in that video this morning. And that is basically that there is no truth. That truth is whatever you want it to be. Um, John MacArthur uh, quotes in his book, Why One Way Defending an Exclusive Claim in an Inexclusive World, says to the postmodernist, reality is whatever the individual imagines it to be. That means what is true is determined subjectively by each person. And there is no such thing as objective, authoritative truth that govern, governs or applies to all humanity universally. The postmodernist naturally believes it is pointless to argue whether opinion A is superior to opinion B. After all, if reality is merely a construct of the human mind, one person's perspective of truth is ultimately just as good as another's. We as believers obviously push against those ideas. We stand firm and believe and hold to the fact that there is without question an absolute truth that exists and it rests in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we fight that battle day by day as believers who are now considered intolerant when we stand up to the truth. So not only are we intolerant to say there is truth, but we are intolerant to say other people are wrong in what they perceive as true. MacArthur goes on to say that Christians cannot capitulate to postmodernism without sacrificing the very essence of our faith. The Bible's claims that Christ is the only way of salvation is certainly out of harmony with the postmodern notion of tolerance. But it is, after all, just what the Bible plainly teaches. And the Bible, not, po- not postmodern opinion, is the supreme authority, authority for the Christian. We read in Psalm 119, verse 60, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. As we look at our passage this morning, we're focusing on the authoritative truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to look at his life, and we want to see his claims, and we want to find solidarity and uh, hope in the truth that Jesus Christ is the living truth. He is the, the understanding and the personification of truth. All that he says and all that is contained in his word is true, thus it is trustworthy, and we should believe it and have faith in him. Jesus is, uh, as, as we looked at last week, he is in the city of Jerusalem at the Feast of the Booths or the Feast of the Tabernacles. And in John chapter 7, we looked last week at his... Um, engagement with his family 
about going to the feast and how he was withholding himself from traveling with his family because his time had not yet come. And what we'll see today is a engaging uh, moment in Jesus's ministry where he's in the temple teaching and he begins to have people question and, and be skeptical of what he is teaching them. Last week, we looked at him as, uh, we looked at the idea or the topic that the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ is intensifying, and really, this could be a, a part two of that, because not only was he physically rejected by his family, and, and, and they were unbelieving of him, but even the things he says and the things he teaches about God's word was being rejected and was criticized, in essence, they were looking at him and say, we don't believe who you are, thus we can't believe that you are speaking truth and that you have the authority to do so. And so this passage, along with all of God's word, is necessary for us as believers to cling to in a world that says, well, it's okay for you to believe in Christ, but it's not necessary for me. And as Christians, we face the future daily persecutions and uh, claims of intolerance when we stand upon Christ as the one way of salvation. He is the one that said, I am the way, truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And when we stand upon that, the world says you are intolerant for saying that other people and other gods and other means of religious salvation are not the way. So let's look this morning at Jesus, the God of truth. My first point or our idea here is, is that the authoritative truth delivered by Jesus is true because he as God is true and he rules all things. Let's read John chapter 7 verses 14 through 18. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So Jesus is at the Feast of the Booths now. 
He has traveled, as we talked about last week, in, in, in a, a more obscure, inconspicuous way. He, he did not travel with his family. He did not travel with the caravan of people. He made his way privately to Jerusalem. And he, in the middle of this uh, eight-day feast, seven days with a celebration on the eighth day, in the middle of this feast, Jesus goes to the temple and he begins to teach. Now, the, set, the setting of this scene is that people have now traveled to Jerusalem, and the city is packed with people for this celebration. The Feast of the Booths, the Feast of the Tabernacles, one of the most popular celebrations or feasts that the Jews uh, traveled or, or as pilgrims uh, went to Jerusalem to celebrate. So imagine that the people in this city particularly around the the temple itself or in the outer courts of the temple, have never come in contact with Jesus. So this is this questioning and this line of of questioning and, and hearing from Jesus for a lot of them could have been very new. And so Jesus is beginning to teach as he does from the scriptures. And remember last week, if, if you weren't here, we made a pretty, uh, a, a pretty distinct clarification that in these passages, when it says or lists the Jews, when it says the Jews, we are interpreting that as the Jewish leadership. Because it was the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, the high priest and, and other leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are seeking to kill him. And in chapter 7 of verse 1, we read, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. The Jews as a nation or as a culture of people were not seeking to kill him. And you'll see that in just a minute. I read earlier, it says in verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. So John is making the distinction, distinction that the Jews are the Jewish leaders and the crowd are just the common people. So he is there teaching in the temple as he usually does. And who is it that begins to be skeptical? Who is it that begins to criticize the Lord Jesus? It's the Jewish leadership. And their question is not a new question. They've asked this before. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? To understand that, you'll understand that that Jesus was not... Uh, like most of the teachers or the rabbis, the scribes. He had not devoted himself as a young boy to sit underneath many of the Jewish rabbis of their day that would take young men and begin to train them like a seminary-type training where he would, they would teach these young boys the scriptures and begin to raise them up to be rabbis one day. He, didn't, he, he wasn't trained in a formal education. He was out working with his father as a carpenter. He obviously know, knew how to read and write, and, and, and he was intelligent, but by all means, these Jewish leaders were so amazed at the teaching of Jesus because he had never received a formal education. He was a common man but, but was, was able to teach with a miraculous source of truth, and that was the Father. 
His authority from the scriptures was undeniable. His enemies were baffled as they attacked his credibility among the people. I really don't think that as they raise this question, I don't think that they're raising this question in their minds. I think that they are trying to discredit Jesus as they say this publicly. And so he, t- he clearly tells them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Jesus and his authoritative truth disseminated from God the Father. You'll know and understand, and, know, and, and, and as you read through the Gospels, as we've read through the Gospels, that the, the truth of, the, of, of Christ is that he is, as John 1 tells us, he is the word. That he is God in the flesh. And in his divinity, he knows all things. And yet in his humanity, we learn and see that Jesus, even he in his humanity, went through a learning process, a growing process. And so he begins to teach, even as a young boy, having an, an amazing and, and miraculous understanding of the Scripture, so much so that he's this young boy in the temple teaching truth, amazing the grown men of the temple. And now we see him kind of on the, the, the back end of, the, of his ministry, still amazing these rabbis with his understanding of the scriptures and his knowledge of the truth. This is the divinity of Christ revealing itself. Just as the transfiguration on the, on the mountain, Jesus is revealing the wisdom and the knowledge and the truth that he personifies as the eternal Son of God. Matter of fact, in John, this is one of the main themes of John, that he wants us to understand that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 1, as I read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made Through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as one of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17 of chapter 1, The law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So the idea is is that John is introducing his gospel to help us understand that as the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ is the truth. Authoritatively, purely truth for us to look at, for us to trust, for us to have hope in. Matter of fact, Robert Bowman points out that of the 1,700 verses where Jesus speaks in the gospel, 
he says the words, I say to you, right? Well, it was the prophets of old that could not say, I say to you. They would say, thus says the Lord. That's very different. The prophets of old were speaking the words that, the, that God was giving them, that Yahweh was speaking to them to tell the people. Jesus did not say, thus says the Lord. Jesus says, I say to you. And of the 1,700 verses containing the sayings of Jesus, one out of every 12 of the sayings of Jesus are authoritative commands. One twelfth. One out of every 12 sayings, Jesus is authoritatively speaking truth as king and as the eternal son of God. What's interesting And what is so amazing to these rabbis is that Jesus was a different preacher than them. He was a different teacher than them, and here's why. Because in the traditionalism of the Jewish culture, a rabbi would always teach the scriptures, but he would always shore up the teaching of the scriptures, not from the scriptures itself, but from the traditions of the rabbis before him. Matter of fact, it was unheard of for a rabbi to stand up and to expound the scriptures without quoting multiple previous or current rabbis and what their interpretations of those scriptures were. So the the general practice became that the rabbis were the best interpreters of the scripture, so let's just continually expound the scriptures by really quoting rabbis after rabbis after rabbis after rabbis. The problem was is that these rabbis' interpretations diverted themselves away from the truth of the scriptures, and this is the crux of Jesus' ministry. He began to reposition the understanding in the minds of people so that they would look to the scriptures alone and not believe these interpretations of these rabbis. That's what he does throughout the Beatitudes. The rabbis had taught about adultery. Let's focus on the lust in your heart, Jesus says. The rabbis had taught about murder, but let's talk about the hate that you have in your heart. So in John chapter 7, these rabbis are so amazed because Jesus doesn't have to quote rabbis. He doesn't need someone else to interpret the scriptures for him. He interprets them perfectly. He expounds them perfectly. And so he teaches publicly with this amazing exposition of the scriptures We see this also in Acts chapter 14. As the the church has started and and the, the Spirit of God has come down upon the apostles, and in John chapter 4, verse 13, or excuse me, Acts chapter 4, verse 13. We read that when, when the people saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And I love this next sentence. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. 
So church, we stand at a time in history where we are coming closer and closer to the, or I would say a wider dividing line between truth, between, excuse me, an objective truth and whatever else is out there. The line is being divided. It's no longer just about what science says versus about what the Bible says. Now anybody can be an interpreter of truth and claim to have their version of it. And that video was just one example. And so now more than ever, we stand upon the foundation that Jesus Christ is our source of truth and spiritual things, that we would find the greatest hope in him and what he has come to accomplish that he is the personification of truth, he is the personification of wisdom. As wisdom is heralded in the, in the book of Proverbs, we understand that the greatest fulfillment of that is found in Jesus. That he is wisdom personified. And if I could speak to our young people um, in, our, in, our, in our congregation this morning, we as adults, we as, as generations um, that grew up in a more found, uh, a truth foundation where we, we trusted in the word and we believed it, we had the critics and we had the skeptics, but let me encourage you young people to stand firm upon what God's word says because God said it. Because he is the one true God and when he speaks, He speaks truth because he is true. There is no evil found within him. And so you can believe and trust in God's word because he has revealed it to us. And you must turn away from the the voices throughout the whole world that says that you are being intolerant if you stand upon an objective truth that Jesus is the only way. An objective truth that marriage is between a man and a woman only. The objective truth that the gender that we are born in is what we continue on throughout our lifetimes because that's how God designed it. It is no less of objective truth than to look outside at that circular object that gives us light and call that the sun. There is no discrepancy that that is the sun. But somehow there is a discrepancy in the truth that some of us are men and some of us are women, some of us are boys and some of us are girls. And young peoples particularly, you have to push against that no matter the consequences. And I believe or I fear that the generations that you grow up in and your children grow up in, if the Lord tarries and has not returned, will face a greater persecution than we face because you take that stand.
And so this is the argument that is being proposed to Jesus is, we don't believe who you are, Jesus. We, we are uh, uh, amazed at your teaching ability, but because we deny your identity, we are skeptical that you have any truth within you. But we know who Jesus is. We know his identity. We understand that he came incarnate in the flesh, that he lived a perfect life, and he died upon the cross as a substitute for sinners, taking the wrath of God for sin upon himself. He died, he was buried, he rose victoriously from the grave, and one day he will return again. That is the one who are saying these things, and he has every authority in the world to speak these things, to teach from the scriptures, Because we know, as Luke tells us, that all the scriptures point to him. So then, as we understand these things, as the Spirit has revealed them to us, then secondly, we as humanity should believe in the absolute truth and work of Jesus as the only Son of God. Verse 17, Jesus says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. In this section here, there is a declaration and there is a condemnation. The condemnation is pretty simple. Jesus is speaking to these Pharisees. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether this teaching is for God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. As God in the flesh, he knows the hearts of these men, and he knows that the hearts of these men are not to do God's will, For if it was, they would not be seeking to kill Jesus. And if they were seeking to to do God's will, they would understand that Jesus is from God and he was speaking on the authority that God had given him because God had prophesied through the prophets that the Messiah would come and that he would live and do the very things that Jesus had been doing and fulfilling. But they were blind to see that. And they were condemned in their blindness. They could not see that Jesus was speaking from an authority given to him. Nor could they see that Jesus was seeking uh, to, to do and to work and to teach for the glory of the Father, not his own glory. This is also a condemnation. Because we know, as we look at the Pharisees and their life as a whole, we know that's exactly why they lived. That was the purpose of their life, for their own glory. That's why they interpreted the scriptures and they relied more on their interpretations than the scriptures themselves, for their own glory. So that they could be popular and they could be in power. So they denied Jesus. We could say they denied the truth of who Jesus is. But we know that the scriptures teach us 
that the Father sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that he might save the world through him. We know that he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God, not by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but of God. We're also told that whoever hears his word and believes the one who sent him has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but passes from death to life. So it's a a clear condemnation of these Pharisees that they did not understand Jesus because they were not of Jesus. They had not passed from death to life. We could say in a sense that they had dead ears. Those who question or deny Jesus do not belong to him because their hearts have not been changed and transformed. They're still dead in their sins. They still remain condemned to pay for the penalty of their sins. But those who hear and those who believe and those who understand God's word and seek to follow his commands, they are the ones who belong to Christ. Not because they do those things, but they do those things because they belong to him. They believe by faith that Jesus is the one true God, that he is, that everything that is written in his word is true. And so if you believe those things today, you and I are witnesses of the truth. And so when we hear things in this crazy world that we live in, and they go completely contrary to scripture, then our spirit Our alarm system, our spiritual alarm system goes off and says, that's not right. That is not what scripture teaches. For example, not too long ago, one follower of Christ stands up in front of a large, large, large congregation and says these words. When we obey God, we're not really doing it for God. We're doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we're happy. Do good for your own selves because God wants you happy. When you come to church and you worship him, you're not really doing it for him. You're doing it for yourselves because that is what makes God happy. Folks, that's heresy. That's blasphemy. And when our spiritual ears hear such error, The spiritual alarms go off and our spirits understanding that this dishonoring garbage goes against the name and the work and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in a way, these words from Jesus this morning are an invitation of evaluation in your own life to basically ask the same question, if anyone's will is to do God's will, you will know that his teaching is from God. Do you seek to do the word of God? Paul tells the Corinthians, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Christ Jesus is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Do you seek to follow God's word and his will? Do you desire to know more about him, to do the will, the will 
of God that's given to us in His Word. If you do not, if you lack understanding of God's Word, if you really don't desire to come to God's, uh, to gather with God's people, which we call the church, to assemble together and learn and be sharpened and be challenged and to be rebuked for the sin in your life, then you have not been awakened by the gospel of Jesus. You are dead in your sins. You have not truly accepted the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or to say it another way, he is not your authority. You have not surrendered to him. For the religious leaders, it's clear that they have not surrendered themselves to Jesus as the promised Messiah and King. But instead they pursue him to kill him. And so Jesus now will take one further step in revealing their true lostness and their spiritual separation from God and how their practices, their religious practices, do absolutely no honoring or glorifying of God the Father. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, Has Moses not given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answers, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So Jesus is referencing John chapter 5. So if you need to flip over one page, John chapter 5, Jesus travels to another feast of the Jews in Jerusalem. We're not told which feast. Commentators uh, argue the different feast that this could be. We're not really told exactly which one. But what we do know is that Jesus is in Jerusalem prior to this event in John chapter 7. And he's there by the sheep gate and there are some invalids laying around the pool of Siloam, and he heals one of these men. He heals them. And in his healing, he tells this man to take up his bed and walk, and it's on the Sabbath. And so, as this man is taking up his bed and walking, the Jewish leaders see this man performing a work on the Sabbath. Taking up your bed and walking was one interpretation of the Jews that you were working on the Sabbath. And that was a big no-no. That was law-breaking. So they inquire a little bit more. Who told you to take up your bed and walk? The man sells out Jesus and says, uh, I don't know his name. And he finds out it was Jesus. And then he goes back to the, 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 the religious leaders and he tells them. And this is beginning... Uh, this begins an engagement with Jesus and these religious leaders whereby he makes some pretty bold declarations. 
Matter of fact, John summarizes it in John chapter 5, verse 18, that this healing on the Sabbath of this lame man was why the, see, they, the Jews were seeking to kill him. Not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but what we'll, what, what we'll see in just a second was that he was even calling God his father and making himself equal with God. And if you read through uh, John chapter 5, As a whole, the whole chapter, you can read all of it. I'm just going to read uh, verses 19 down to 24. Jesus says to them in John chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For what the Father does, the Son does likewise. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as, the, uh, as they honor the Father. Who, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So in that discourse, Jesus is making clear parallels that as the eternal Son of God, he made a right judgment to heal this man on the Sabbath. And from that point, the Jews are trying to kill Jesus. They are plotting to kill him because they feel that he not only broke the Sabbath, but that he was blasphemous in making himself or declaring that he is one with the Father or equal with God. So that's what Jesus is talking about in in, uh, John chapter 7. He says, I did one work. That's what he's talking about, and you marvel at it. That one work is the healing. But then he flips the script on them. Because he says, see, you guys have this Jewish practice. It's called circumcision. And as Jews, you are faithful to circumcise every male child on the eighth day. Every male child is circumcised on the eighth day of their life on this earth. But what you fail to understand is that if that eighth day falls upon the Sabbath, you will still sacrifice that child, and yet you do, or not sacrifice, circumcise that child, and yet you will not consider that a work. So in other words, you hypocrites. Circumcision is a covenantal rite or a covenantal ceremonial act whereby it, it, it represents a number of different truths. One, it's a, it's a setting apart of the Jews from the nation. It's also a, uh, it's a sense of cleansing. It's a, it's a hygienic act. And so it represents a, a sense of, of cleansing. Even Jesus at one point says that you circumcise your body, you need to circumcise your heart. So it's a, it gives this idea of cleansing. 
And so Jesus is using this example, and it's beautiful. He's saying, look, you perform this cleansing act on the Sabbath, and it's okay for you to do that. You take this, this part of this, of this body, and you, and you perform cleansing, and it's okay for you to do those things. I cleansed this man's entire body. I, I, I healed him and made his body whole and well again, and, let, and yet you want to you call me a, a, a Sabbath breaker, and you want to try to kill me. Your interpretation is, is skewed. Your understanding is wrong. You don't understand the depth of your sin. Why? Because those who cannot see Jesus as God suppress the truth in their unbelief and hypocrisy. They suppress it. It doesn't matter what is true, they suppress it. The truth does not go away when you suppress something. It's still there, it's just pushed down, it's, it's, it's almost, it's, it's, it's trying to avoid what is real. And the authoritative truth of Christ is real, but unbelievers want to suppress it. But they cannot remove it. They can deny it, but they cannot eliminate it. The truth is eternal. It's always there. And so the truth of Jesus is not a removing of the lordship of Christ. It's a denying of him. It's a suppressing of him. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so Jesus is calling them out on this truth suppression. His greater declaration is really a condemnation on their sinfulness and their lack of seeing their true sinfulness. That's why in verse 19 he says, Has not Moses given you the law, and yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Well, we know that a part of the law was one uh, command of God that says, Thou shalt not kill and yet again, the Jews had found a way to, in all their hypocrisy and unbelief, find an excuse or rationalize the reason to want to kill Jesus and say that it was okay. Even though he had clearly demonstrated a greatness beyond their understanding. He had demonstrated his deity. He had demonstrated his power. He had demonstrated his authority and teaching. And yet they suppress all those things. And in doing so, seek to kill Jesus, which also breaks the law of God, which was given by Moses. So, in perspective, we as believers understand that this truth exists and it rests in Jesus. So it gives us a good mental understanding and framework as we go out into the world and we understand the truth is there, people. The world is just suppressing it. 
And so our desire should never, or, or our, um, our interaction with the people of this world should not be frustration. We, we don't expect blind people to drive correctly down the street. They are blind, so we need to understand that the truth is there. They have suppressed it, and we need to help them understand that truth. That requires patience. That requires determination. But we have no reason to doubt, because God is eternal, and his truth is eternal, because his word is eternal. It does not change. There is no variance. And so we must hold to that truth. And as we engage the lost world, we need to be patient and gentle and yet firm in standing upon the truth of Christ. And as you know, that lost world will oftentimes quote to you from the Beatitudes because somehow that's one of two or three verses that they know where they say, you know, judge not lest you be judged. But let's be reminded of what Jesus says in this last verse in verse 24. And maybe put this in your arsenal. When they say to you, well, judge not lest you be judged, then you maybe respond and say, well, he also said, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. See, the right judgment is the absolute standard of Jesus. When we talk about people's sin and we want to help them understand their sinfulness so they can understand the grace and the beauty and the love of the gospel, they get offended in their hearts because they think that we are making ourselves the standard. Oh, well, you're just judging me thinking that, you know, you're better than me. No, that's not what we're judging at all. We are holding you to the same judgment that we hold ourselves to who is the perfect son of God. He is the standard. And so in essence, you should not judge by appearances, but instead you should judge by right judgment, true judgment. And that comes through Jesus. The question is, Are you perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect? And by God's grace, we will help them see through the power of the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the proclaimed word of God that if we are held to the standard of Jesus' perfection, that we miss the mark of that standard. The Jews had missed the mark. They weren't listening to God's word. They were more interested in their word. They were not interested in the glorification of God and his son that was in their midst. They were interested in their self-glory. When Jesus says, blessed are the meek, they somehow interpreted that they were meek. But they weren't. And so we as, as believers must live in such a way 
where we judge with right judgment that falls underneath Christ. That we would believe in the source of truth, the Lord Jesus. As I close, I want us to think about and remember the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan king and at one point boasted before the Lord and and his people that all his achievements were by his own power and strength. And so God humbled this king by making him into an animal-like person where he was an outcast. He went from being a king to, as the Bible declares, being a degenerate, almost like an animal. And of course, this in the story humbles King Nebuchadnezzar for a time. He comes to his senses and he begins to praise the Lord of heaven. And in his praise, he declares these words in Daniel chapter 4. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right. And all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is our prayer for an unbelieving world that fail to see their own sin and stand upon the truth of Christ. And in their arrogance and in their self-glory, they are condemned in their own sin. And so the warning for you this morning is to turn from your sin and from your self-glory and from your idolatry and stop trusting in yourself to be a good person and trust in the one source of truth that has been revealed to us, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. And so if you are an unbeliever today, and maybe you have not considered yourself an unbeliever until earlier when we were challenging you to examine yourself, and in, ex- examine, and in that examination you have understood your lostness, we would say this morning, with all gentleness and boldness, repent from your sins and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as parents this morning, believing parents, I would encourage you in a different way. 
Many of us this morning are trying to raise our children or our grandchildren up in the wisdom and the knowledge of the Lord. And, and, and can we just be honest this morning and acknowledge that there are so many different ways and avenues and, and things that, that crowd our mind, their voices that are screaming into our parenting and saying, this is a better way to raise your children. This is a better system or a better practice than the word of God. And we are tempted to lean away from the true source of of how to be God-honoring, Christ-exalting parents. And we we are led astray at times to think that other systems and practices that exist in the world are a better way. Turn away from that. Trust that God's word who created you, who created your children who is the source of all good and truth, understand that that his word is how we should be guided and directed as we raise our kids. Young people, if you believe in Jesus Christ, as I've said, root yourself in the foundation of the Lord Jesus. Do not suppress the truth, suppress the error and the lies that Satan and the world wants to scream at you that there is a better way, that there is a more tolerable way in the world. Suppress that error. Get that out of your mind. Remove it from within you. And, and, and if you have to, take away those influences that continually scream that into your life. Be willing to face persecution. Be willing to uh, receive um, the title of intolerant or bigot or hatred. But stand firm in the Lord Jesus that you believe and trust in. And as a church... I would encourage us to be proclaimers of the truth. There is nothing else that will save a lost and dying world. Our practices, our methods, if they are not rooted in and founded in the truth of God's word and Christ Jesus alone, they will fail. They will not produce genuine disciples. They will only produce replicants of religiosity. They will be clones of Christianity, but they won't be Christians because they were never changed and transformed. So as we go to a lost and dying world and we proclaim the gospel, we have the one source of salvation to share with them, and we should do it faithfully. Because it is contained in no other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.